Welcome to the Influential Nonprofit, the show for nonprofit leaders to grow their influence so they can grow their income and impact. Now here's your host, Marianne Dersh. Welcome to the Influential Nonprofit Podcast. I am your host, Mary Andersh. I work with nonprofits to grow their influence so they can grow their income and increase their impact. And I am also the author of Courageous Communication, How Codependence is Making Your Nonprofit Brand Boring and What to Do About It. And today I am very excited to welcome my friend, Rachel D'Souza Siebert, who is a badass, just like me. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you. And thank you for having me today. You're welcome. So I've known Rachel for a few years and I've read her. I looked at your bio on the website. I knew you, you worked with Habitat for Humanity and then you worked for a local language immersion charter school here and fundraising. And then in 2015, you started Gladiator Consulting And I just love what you do. And the reason I'm bringing Rachel to this audience today is because she has what I feel is some really important work to bring forward. And, you know, we're both disruptors of an industry. And that's why I feel like we have a strong affinity. And and I think what you're doing is so powerful and important. And I really want people to know about it. And so let's get started there. Tell me just um, about sort of your path to how you got where you are and, and what were the catalysts for those things? Yeah, definitely. Thank you. I mean, thanks for such a warm introduction. So, you know, first of all, I was born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri. This is definitely my home, Um, though my parents immigrated from India back in the 70s. And so for me, it was a really interesting time growing up in this community because, you know, St. Louis, as many know, is a very uh, black and white community. And my brothers and I grew up here as non-black people of color. And so, Definitely from a very young age, I sort of realized, okay, I am the other other. And for for a while, I think that made me, you know, feel lonely. And then I realized that I really had an opportunity to help our community bridge the differences that we perceive that we have. You know, so I went to high school and had the opportunity here to go through a program called Anytown Youth Leadership Institute uh, when I was 17 years old that is sponsored by the National Conference on Community and Justice. And that really cemented for me that no matter where I, I wound up in life, that I really wanted to be able to interrupt institutional and systemic oppression across race, across gender, ability no matter what I chose to do with my life. So left St. Louis for a little bit to study political science and women's studies at Loyola University in Chicago, came back to St. Louis and got my degree in public policy administration, my master's degree at UMSL, the University of Missouri, St. Louis, and really decided that my home, at least to get started, would be in the nonprofit world, in fundraising. And uh, as you mentioned, I had the opportunity to start my nonprofit career at Habitat for Humanity St. Louis. Uh, So went from working in this internationally recognized behemoth of a nonprofit to then pivoting and working with a very local, small grassroots charter school serving the city of St. Louis. And in 2015, I had my second child 
and really had the opportunity to take a step back and think about what I wanted to do next. And as I looked at the nonprofit sector in St. Louis, there were things for me that kept coming up and, and really these themes where, you know, you have people who are trying to do life-changing systems, changing work with pennies. They have people that have passion, but they don't necessarily have the skill or the networks. They're so focused on mission that they wind up, you know, while they're able to reduce some harm, they really aren't able to change systems and to solve the problems, you know, that they're, that they're really seeking to, to sort of figure out. And I wound up founding Gladiator with this idea that we have an opportunity to bring power back to our nonprofit organizations to think differently about how we use our resources, how we leverage our talent, how we collaborate, how we bust silos, how we challenge the power dynamics in philanthropy. And that's really where I have uh, spent time growing my consultancy and my client base over the last five and a half years. And it's so interesting because when I tell the story of how I got on the path that I was, you know, it goes back to my childhood of being like a later in life child and feeling sort of left out and left behind and less than. And like, and then that is the fuel that I use for, you know, my work. And so, and I see you, I mean, I had a visual of you as this, as this, as this little girl, you know, feeling like I'm not, I don't fit in with this group and I don't fit in with this group and I feel so alone. And then at, at some point changing that narrative to say, wow, I'm in this ideal position to really build some bridges between communities, especially in this city, as you mentioned, which is, you know, very contained, very siloed. Right. Right. And I think, you know, this might be an overused term, but I really think it is about embracing an abundance mindset. You know, when we focus on what we don't have, it becomes easy to not act or to think that we're the wrong person or we we don't have enough resources or enough knowledge. And I've really found that when we embrace an abundance mindset and decide that we probably have everything we need to at least try the results are so much bigger and the work feels so much easier because we do have what we need. Ab- absolutely. We have everything we need. And that's one of the things you talked about was the, you know, philanthropy, like challenging the power structure of philanthropy. And, you know, and I think that is why, you know, of course, organizations are hesitant to do that because of a scarcity mindset. I don't want to make the donors mad. You know, mm-hmm. I don't want to challenge my donors. I don't want to challenge philanthropy because then I won't have money. And the abundance mindset is I'm going to do what's right and what I know is right. And I know that what I need will flow to me. Absolutely. And that for me is a key. And one of the things that I know we both work on is, you know, the nonprofit industry typically has a, a fear-based scarcity hair on fire mentality at the best of times, right? And now in the difficult circumstances we're in, that's, that is coming forward even more and, and switching that mindset. Cause it really is a mindset, right? Just deciding like, mm-hmm. you know, like at some point you just decide that you have enough that the, and you're going to be okay. And then you can step into some of these new 
ways of, of doing it. Before we get into, because I want to talk more with you about your diversity, equity, inclusion work and about community-centric fundraising. Before we do that, what I, I just want to ask you, what are some of the successes and accomplishments that you've had over the years? You know, especially your work with Gladiator. Can you look back over the last five, six years and say, I can see a difference in our community through the work that me and my team have done? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'll be honest, it's a strange place for me to sit in because when I got started, it it really was, how do I, you know, make this change in my job and be able to be the kind of mom that I want to be and be the kind of friend that I want to be and be the kind of spouse that I want to be. And really also just wanted to have a company that I believed in and do good work. That that was really, you know, how I started. There wasn't a business plan. There wasn't, you know, five-year projections or or any of those things that I think sometimes when we think of entrepreneurship and and going out on your own, that that seem like the things that you're, you know, that are on your checklist. But when I got started, you know, I'll say that I know that there were some things that I had that word to my advantage. Um, and really, I had the opportunity and the privilege to be able to leave the job that I had been in, knowing that my spouse was employed and that he would, you know, be keeping the lights on in our house and that if I failed, you know, my children weren't going to starve and, and we were still going to have a, a roof over our heads. But I never thought back in 2015 when I was spending a couple hours consulting here and there with a four-year-old and a newborn that my business would grow from that to, you know, now five and a half years later, three full-time employees and, you know, 12 to 15 independent contractors working with us. And I think for me, the biggest accomplishment that I would share is that people are finally talking to each other. And we're starting to realize that when we look at funders, when we look at consultants, when we look at nonprofits, it doesn't have to be a competition. And when we take that piece out of it, right? We talked about abundance mindset. When we take the scarcity mindset out of the work, really big, amazing things can happen. And so I look at some organizations that we work with now who, you know, they wouldn't consider themselves social justice oriented. They wouldn't consider themselves a progressive organization, but they now know that if they're willing to put some resources into figuring out what does equity look like within my organization? What does equity look like when we include our stakeholders in driving our work? That the change actually happens and that we can actually say, this is our mission and we are doing it. We are making things move in this direction because we have decided to do this work differently. So I think for me, it's the mere fact that there are folks at various levels with various level of of power and resources of engagement and action within the community that are willingly participating in a conversation that can be a little bit uncomfortable, but that can ultimately yield some really positive outcomes for our community. Yeah, that's amazing. And any, any time that we can have those conversations, it's, it's so powerful. 
and having them do that work and do that work willingly. That is, that's an accomplishment and I love it. And I, I love what you said about, you know, it's all wrapping into an abundance mindset and, and feeling comfortable kind of jumping in when you're not sure, you mm-hmm. know, and, and again, going into like, if we say or do the wrong thing, we maybe we're going to lose money, you know, like, yeah. and just, and, and doing the right thing by, you know, by the community and by the stakeholders, that's what, what brings people to you. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I would say, you know, we hear this in nonprofits, I think fairly often, if you have to convince somebody to make a contribution to your organization, they're probably not your donor and probably not where you need to spend your time. And, and I feel, I feel that way about this work as well. Like if you are ready to be uncomfortable, if you are ready to have hard conversations, you find gladiator consulting. And if you're not there yet, there are plenty of other places and other organizations that can meet you where you are. And I don't think that that means that that's the end. That just means that that's where you are now. And there is always time to grow and to change and to yep. make different decisions. Yep. And I love that. And, you know, that's my, my whole book is about not convincing. You can't convince people to care. You know, philanthropy is born of, of our experiences and, you know, and our, what I call our philanthropic heart comes from our experiences, you know, from childhood and, and either that we, something new we want to see in the world or a pain we want to relieve. And you, you really can't change anyone's philanthropic heart and trying to convince people to care is, is just, it it wastes so much time and resources. And that's for me, what makes fundraising hard, Mm -hmm. right. Is because people are working so hard to convince and in your work too, like, I'm not going to convince you, Hey, this is, you need to do some equity work. Like when you're ready, I'm here. Absolutely. And, you know, I'll use, um, uh, if it's okay with you, I have an example of I think where yeah, this yes. comes up in a really you know real way in the in the St. Louis community and I think nationally. Ferguson means something to people, right? When we think about Ferguson, we think about the murder of Mike Brown, and out of that in this region uh, came the Ferguson Commission, and then came forward through Ferguson, the nonprofit organization that is essentially tasked with carrying this work forward. I have had the opportunity since, you know, 2016 or 2017 to be involved and supporting Ford through Ferguson with their fund development efforts. And when we first got started, people really were scared to support the work and to support the 189 calls to action. And it was really difficult to raise funds from donors outside of, you know, those annual donors who will give, you know, maybe a gift of less than $250 a year. And then these larger, you know, local and national foundations. And there's this sort of huge gap that's, in the yeah, middle. That's a huge gap people. in the middle there, right. <laughs> right. Of people who, who they didn't know where they fit and they weren't, they weren't ready. And so over the course of the last few years, you know, we really tried to focus on telling some stories and sharing the lived experience of people who are in the work and 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 really trying to hold this mirror up to say everyone has a place here. Um you got to got to get in where you fit in. And you know, in 2020 when the pandemic hit, 
together with the executive director of Ford the Ferguson, we made a really hard decision to pause our fundraising efforts because we are an upstream organization. We are looking at systems and policy, and we knew that the philanthropic community in St. Louis and beyond really needed to focus on some direct services. And so we made the decision to pause. Uh, we had to, you know, look at our budget. We had to have the board make some cuts. And and we knew that that was just going to be true because we needed to make sure that we were stepping back in order for direct service organizations to step forward. Well, then we get to May of 2020 and, you know, we have the spring where you have people like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, among many other Black people who are murdered in a very public, very brutal way. And all of these folks who didn't feel like they had fit in back in 2014 showed up for Ford through Ferguson in a in an amazing and overwhelming way. And, and what I, what I really realized from that is that over the course of, you know, those, those five or six years, people learned and they read and they volunteered and they talked to their friends and they paid attention. And when they had the opportunity to get involved, they took it. And, you know, it's unfortunate. It's, I always think of it as bittersweet that those kinds of acts of violence are what ultimately are, are the opening for folks to get involved or make their first gift. But now we have such an expansive foundation of these people that there isn't a big gap in the middle, right? Those people who didn't know where they fit, they found their place and they are in it. And it is our job now to continue to steward and communicate and teach so that we are able to maintain and grow those supporters. That's amazing. And I feel you around. There's so much destruction um, and that brings forth so much goodness and change. And it, it hurts when it happens that way. And yet we see so many examples in our history of, of that destruction being the catalyst for the changes. Having said that, what I'd love for you to share a little bit is uh, what is um, community-centric fundraising and why should nonprofits be adapting this model? Sure. Yeah. So back in 2017, our our favorite blogger, Vule, who is the author of Nonprofit AF, shared a blog post called The Nine Principles of Community-Centric Fundraising. And that that blog post paired with another piece that I read in the Stanford Social Innovation Review called Shifting Philanthropy from Charity to Justice. They really stuck with me and they really sort of set the foundation for the way that my firm works with clients to to raise resources and support for organizations. And what it really boils down to, I think, is this idea that and and we know this, right? We've heard this in donor-centric fundraising. Like, we don't want charitable giving to be transactional. We want it to be transformational. So community-centric fundraising, which actually sort of launched as a movement back in July of 2020, um, so actually fairly recently, positions this idea that we have the opportunity as nonprofit professionals, as, as fundraisers, 
to be transformational in the way that we raise resources for our organizations. It's not just about the relationships that we have with the donors, but it really is the relationship that our donors have with our organizations, with our stakeholders, with the community that we seek to serve. And it really also does give the opportunity for those stakeholders and for community to begin to inform how we raise resources and where those resources are coming from. So it's a, it's a really exciting time, I think, to be a part of the nonprofit ecosystem, because I think for a long time, for decades, we've really grappled with a power imbalance. We've really felt like, you know, you hear things about mission drift or about, you know, writing the grants to keep the lights on. And I think with community-centric fundraising, we have the opportunity to put a stake in the ground and to say, look, We are not here to put band-aids on things. We are here to shift the way that resources are moved throughout the community. And now we are calling our funding partners in. We are calling our high net worth donors in. We are calling our community in because it's time for us to do something different with the resources that are entrusted to us. Yeah, that makes me think of there's a book that's called The Soul of Money. And it's not it's um it's not a fundraising book, but it was written by a, a fundraiser who did international hunger relief fundraising. Her name's Lynn Twist. And okay. one of the most profound quotes of the book is talking about how, how for all of us to sit around at the table together and be partners in our joint liberation. Right? It, yes. And it's from the stakeholders to the well, like because just to be like, oh, you have the money, you have the power. And we all have the power, mm-hmm. right? Like, and there's power in, in everyone. And like, and so sitting around at the table as partners in our joint liberation. And I just always remembered that quote. And then for those out, we'll put the, the, that book in the show notes. It, it, it really is because this is a person who went from, you know, very wealthy people's homes to like really poor international relief work and like making sense of what that felt like that imbalance of it. And it's rooted in all of these ideas that we're talking about around abundance, around that everyone has something to give, right? Everyone has something to contribute. And that it reminds me so much of that. And I would love if you could just give me like, give, give us an example of like what community centric fundraising looks like in the world, like, how is that different than a current model? Yeah. So, you know, I think um, one of my favorite examples that has, well, I'll give, I'll give you two. There are two that have really popped up recently. So again, back in 2020, uh, 4th Ferguson was going to do their annual sort of collaboration fundraising event. It's called Partners in Change in the spring and it, we moved it to be virtual and and over the course of time leading up to that event the organization as i shared received a lot of funding and a lot of really surprising unsolicited gifts and so we planned this event as a fundraiser and realized wait a minute we have the opportunity to take the revenue from this event and disperse it out to our partner organizations who need the money as well. And so we took a chunk of the net revenue from that event and we dispersed it out to four grassroots organizations who are who are moving within and through community supporting housing, supporting the 
trans community, supporting um, the LGBTQIA community, figuring out how to get to support to um, Black moms and babies. And it was it was a big deal. Um, Fourth of Ferguson's not a large nonprofit, but they had enough, right? They made a decision that we are not going to hoard these resources. We're going to get them where they need to go. And I think being able to say as, say as a nonprofit organization or a leader of a nonprofit organization, we have what we need right now. And we know that if our peer organizations in this work are not successful, does it even matter, right? It's not going to take one organization meeting their budget to get the work. Mm-hmm. It has to be all of us. So, so that's one example, I think, of where nonprofits can, can lead differently and can lead by example. Now, separate from that, there was a wonderful collaboration that happened in the region um, at the end of 2019 going into 2020. So we have uh, Deaconess Foundation is located here in St. Louis, and they have really modeled their strategy around making sure that, you know, in 20 years or so, the children that are growing up in the community now face a different St. Louis as adults. And one of the things that people have been struggling with in this community is medical debt. So the Deaconess Foundation partnered with a local collaboration of faith-based institutions through a collaboration called Metropolitan's Congregations United. And together, they raised money and then used that money to pay off I think over a million dollars of medical debt for people that were living and working in St. Louis. Wow. Exactly. You know, it is, it is those kinds of things that we don't think about. We don't think about the individual burden that is carried by our community members. But when you do something like that, when you coordinate resources in such a way that you alleviate the financial burden on the people that are living and working in our community, they're able to turn around and make different choices with their resources. And that to me will always stand out as an example of what we can accomplish when we decide that, you know, we can collaborate, we can do things differently. We can be a little risk-taking, you know, with the resources. Yes, we can. Yeah. And also we just want to mention that the former president of the Deacus Foundation, Starsky Wilson, is now head of the Children's Defense Fund. Yes. And so that just speaks to the caliber of the Deacus Foundation's work and how bold they were in taking a big stand to solve some of these, you know, just chronic issues in our community. And because that's what it takes to solve it. And and what I'm hearing from you is, is, you know, that we may be in the philanthropic world unknowingly or unconsciously perpetuating some of the system, some of the conditions that, that our, our fundraising, our philanthropy is designed to alleviate. Right. And, and- Oh, absolutely. And, you know, if you want to, you want to dive deep into that, you know, look <laughs> no further than, you know, um, Edgar Villanueva's decolonizing wealth. There's the book Winner Take All that came out a few years ago uh, by another man of color. Like, go there, read up. There's the, you know, the revolution will not be funded, which came out quite a bit ago. There's fundraising for social change. I think there's a lot of content that is available that 
will we'll give us pause and will give us an opportunity to think about where where we can break some of these cycles of inequity. I, I love it. And I wanted to ask you for, I feel like there's a lot of people, leaders inside nonprofit organizations that would love to have a conversation with the leadership, with the board or the CEO, ED, around equity. And it may feel overwhelming or scary to bring that forward. Like, you know, the risk feels high. And I guess my question is, what would you say to them? And like, how to start that conversation? And also, what do you feel like the benefits are of, of really working on and focusing on, on, on developing the equity in, in your nonprofit? Sure. So I, I do think it's, it can be a difficult conversation uh, for people throughout various levels of the organization. And it's also very public right now. So, you know, if organizations aren't talking about it, there there's going to be someone that's starting that conversation. I think it's important when we start to explore this work and where, where our organization is on a, for lack of a better term, a continuum of, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, we have to really figure out what our starting line is. We in the nonprofit sector tend to have this sort of mutually reinforced set of expectations and cycles that we go through. And when we decide to change or when we decide to shift our narratives, we are flipping the script for some people. And that can lead to discomfort and anger and people feeling vulnerable and yep. You know, all all the feelings people work really hard not to feel. All the, yes, all the feelings. (laughs) Guilt, shame, yes, all that, you know. And the thing that I, you know, that I really try to remind people of is when we, when we talk about these big problems, we're not going to fix them with one conversation. We're not going to fix them with 10 conversations. And and quite frankly, we're not going to fix them with a hundred conversations. We have to acknowledge the fact that the things that we're struggling with now, they have been around for centuries and it is going to take incremental change and small wins to begin to move individuals and organizations and systems towards equity. But, and, and actually a, a great resource for that if folks are interested, the organization Equity at the Center published a report that's called, let's see, Awake to Woke to Work, that really looks at this process of operationalizing equity with a very long lens. They're, they're talking about, you know, at least a decade of transformation within an organization. So the first thing that I would, I would remind people and say is that <laughs> this is this is the long game we're in. We're not we're not gonna fix things in this fiscal year, right? right. And then I think the other thing. Um, that feels really important to me is that we all benefit when things are more equitable. And there seems to be, again, I'm going back to the scarcity mindset that somehow if we share our resources, if I share my power, if I step aside in my leadership position, that I am somehow losing something. And when we look at 
various bodies of research, if we look at it in housing, if we look at it in economic development, if we look at it in corporate for-profit organizations, we see very clearly that when companies are more equitable, that when all people have access to the same opportunities, it raises all ships. So this idea that we're all somehow playing a zero sum game, like we need to, we need to let it go. We need to hug it and we need to send it on its way because it's not true. And let's see, I think it was maybe the Kellogg Foundation that recently released a report that's the, the corporate case for racial equity that will echo some of these things that I shared. When we decide to do the hard work, everybody benefits from it. Yeah. You know, and I confessed a few years ago, you know, I mean, and you may have too, before we, you know, we raised our consciousness around these issues. You know, I, I, I mean, we would say, you know, there's only so much money for philanthropy. So you have to get your, you have to get your slice of the pie and, you know, and as, as, you know, or there's only so much money. So you gotta, you gotta get that messaging. Right. And, and, and it was, it's like, there's, there's unlimited money. There, there's no other industry that's saying there's only so much money. You know, you right. know what I'm saying? Like Amazon's over there going, oh, there's only so much money for online shopping. No, that is not. But in our industry, it felt like very constrained. Like, oh, we are all struggling for this one to eat from this one pie. Right. And that's and 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 I feel like the long term effect of that was this isolation mm-hmm. and this kind of like hoarding of resources. Because you feel so, and these are my foster puppies playing in the background, <laughs> trying to mute myself so you don't hear them. Um, and but this is real life, folks. This is how we live. Yes. Yes. Welcome <laughs> to pandemic times. Yeah. Where welcome we're all, to life, we're life all at home. coexisting. <laughs> yes. Um, and, you know, and, and I feel like this is the dismantling of that, of that philosophy along with so many other things in our society. So it just, it makes sense of the rising of something like community centric fundraising, because I feel like right now in our society, we're really looking for a new way, a better way. And in the, in the COVID, you know, what it did was it really stripped bare some of the inequities that people have known about people of color and like, Mm -hmm. and our world have known about for centuries, you know, and like, Oh, now it became like more apparent to people. And I think that also has caused us to like, really say, okay, is there is there a better way? You know, even like the canceling of fancy galas, which mm-hmm. what, which is a huge thing for people and a huge way to make, raise money. And I feel like people use galas and I'm, I, I could go off on this one for a while. People use galas because they're afraid to ask for what they want. So it's easier to sell a ticket. Yeah. And when the dem- dismantling of those, Oh, really? Hey, you know what? How I raise money is building really good relationships with people, transparent, authentic, honest relationships with people. And, you know, like, you know what I'm saying? So it caught a lot of this causes to question, like, wait, do I really need to put those resources into that? You know, what I, what, when, what I really want to do is build strong relationship is a gala, the best way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And the thing, you know, I am, I, I love a good party. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> me too. <I> do. <laughs> do we do we need to you know mix mix our work and pleasure and use a party as a fundraiser? I don't know. I don't think that we do. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, it's been 
it's been really hard to watch some of these organizations who had, you know, the one fundraiser, the one gala raised a huge portion of their revenue that now when they're going back to their supporters and saying, we're not doing this, their supporters aren't giving. Yeah. You know, that, that, that's not transformational. That's not an authentic relationship. Uh That was transactional. There was a different value there. And now these organizations, some of which are actually doing really meaningful work are struggling. Yeah. And then there's the other side of it where people are like, wow, they can, they'll give to me without a party. This is amazing. You know, and cause I know organizations that did really well, well, because they're the, the expense of the party and, you know, was no longer. So it, it, it just like they realized that they had, and I think you, that's going to come out, right? If it was transformational or transactional, what I call it committed or compliant, you know, if you're committed to the cause or just compliant, and you know, to the event you're going to pay because it's a party, that transactional, like that came out clear for people. Right. Yeah. And, and so if your relationships felt more transactional, yeah, you're going to have to build those transformative, you know, transparent, authentic relationships, which is really the foundation of any of the work we do anywhere, not just fundraising. Absolutely. And I think you maybe we, we've both touched on this, but I think that then it requires you to be vulnerable. It requires you to be an authentic human. It requires you to come to a conversation willing to, you know, I think people often try to put up these boundaries between their identities. Like this is who I am at work and this is who I am at home. And, and we have to shake that off (laughs) And, and be willing to be vulnerable when we enter into these conversations with our donors. And that's exactly like in my influence work, because that's what I teach organizations and individuals inside organizations is their influence is they, the people who are the most vulnerable have the most influence, right? And, and, and the people who can feel anything, if you're willing to be uncomfortable and to feel uncomfortable and, and to feel some of those feelings that, you know, feel a little bit icky, you can do anything. And so much of our energy is spent like avoiding what quote unquote, the drama or avoiding feelings when really, you know, that is how we get the work done, you know, and be willing to just step in into vulnerability, sharing openly and allowing that grace from everyone else, right. Allowing that, you know, allowing everyone else to be their authentic self as well. And that's when the real transformation happens, you know, and organizations that are willing and individuals that I coach that are willing to step into that become very powerful. Yeah. You know, I really, I really appreciate that. I think that that is huge. And I, I I don't think I've ever actually thought about it that way until you said it, that, that vulnerability is powerful. I've never sat with that though. I absolutely agree with you. Well, and, and in that, like in the leaders that are willing to be vulnerable will you know, the most vulnerable person in the room has the most influence mm-hmm. and when, and, and looking at vulnerability as a, as not a weakness, but as a strength, as an openness. Right. And again, with that abundance mindset of, I will be safe and supported, you know, I'm not, not everything is going to be okay. It already is okay. It is okay. Right. Mm-hmm. In this moment, we're okay. And focusing in on that and that, and, and I have to have seen, you know, and that's what I work with people on that, that, oh, I'm this way at work and this way at home. Like, no, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> no one gets a personality transplant when the, you know, when, when the clock is, when you, you know, you clock out or whatever, it, it's all one. And, you know, and it's all about being that aligned, authentic 
person. And then when you can move into that, it becomes very powerful. Uh, okay. So I just want to start wrapping up. What do you, I would love to see like, or hear about what you think are, you know, some of the big challenges ahead and some of the big successes you see coming, you know, like, what do you see coming for in the nonprofit industry, both good and bad? Yeah. So, you know, I think when I reflect on the last couple of years, um, and really just the, what is that term? VUCA, the volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous nature of the sector, a few things really spring to mind for me. I think we're going to start to see some mergers and some acquisitions. I also think that we're going to see some organizations close their doors. I hope that that means more efficiency and more partnership for the sector. I also think, and and I'm excited about this, I think we're going to start to see more funder collaboration. I think we're going to see some of the walls and the gatekeeping come down. I've already seen that start to happen in St. Louis, where we have those folks that are the EDs or or gatekeepers for their for their institutions beginning to invite nonprofit staff to connect directly with boards of trustees. I think that that is huge. I think we are going to start, well, we, we are already seeing, and I think we're going to continue to see both foundations, institutions, um, donors, and nonprofit organizations continue to and increase their engagement with policy and advocacy and working to get more um, more progressive policies or policies that align with mission and vision. So, so I do see those things coming. Um, I also wonder in this, you know, period of time when a lot of folks maybe have left their full-time employment or regular employment, if we're going to see, you know, a, a burst of, of new players in, in the gig economy or in the consulting field. And, and I hope that that's true. You know, some of the best work that I have been able to do has happened when I have found other smart people who have different skills to offer. And I've been able to bring them onto a client or onto a project and, and really use this collective wisdom to advance, advance the work. And so it is my hope that, you know, these are hard times and we're all going to have to come out of this probably in a completely different, you know, configuration than we went in. But I have hope that that means that we're going to be more agile with our resources, that we're going to be more collaborative with those who are doing work for a same set of folks, and that we're going to realize that when we are willing to put money and resources out into the community, that the community knows what needs to be done with those resources, where they need to go. And I I ultimately hope that it results in, in better trust and better, you know, as you said, transformational relationships that have vulnerability that are that are everything we need that are abundance mindset to to advance this work. I love it. And 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 so when we uh when we say our vision or our wish we just say and and so it is. So I'm just going to say and so it is. <laughs> like it yeah. is it, it's happened. Uh yes. all right. I just I'm I I want to say, you know, from my heart, I I love you. I love your work. I love your 
trueness to yourself and your and your boldness to really speak and speak the unspoken, especially in our community that's gone for a very long time without really speaking a lot about about many things, right? Yeah. Um, and so I want to thank you for that. And I have a one final question, and it's a little more lighthearted. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know I love three things. I love Diet Cokes extra large diet Cokes, ultra high heels and short karaoke rotations. Right. Yeah. So this is in honor of, 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 of my coach. Her name's Michelle Villalobos. And she does this at the end of her podcast. And I asked her if I could do this as well, cause it's perfect for me. So when we get out and if we're going to go out, like when everything opens up again and we can, I can finally sing karaoke and you and I are going to go sing karaoke. What is your go to karaoke song? Okay, it's a tie. Are you ready for this? Yeah. Yeah. Either let's give them something to talk about by Bonnie Raitt or save a horse, ride a cowboy. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So Rachel, we there will be one day in the future when we will go out and I will hear you sing those songs. I promise. (laughs) I am it. Thank you so much for being on the Influential Nonprofit. What an amazing conversation. And how can folks get a hold of you? Yeah, so you can visit my website at gladiatorrds.com. Um, you can also connect with me via email. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. Come find me. I'm thinking about Instagram uh, for Gladiator. We'll see what happens. All right. Thank you, Rachel. And thank you, everyone, for joining me on this week's episode of The Influential Nonprofit. Thanks for listening to The Influential Nonprofit with your host, Marianne Dirsch. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast. Also, check out theinfluentialnonprofit.com for more resources on growing your influence so you can raise more and do more.